0: Imagine what it would be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. There's a well-known verse in Romans 12 and verse 2 that needs to receive a lot of careful thought. We all know it, where Paul tells us to, and I quote, let God transform you, huge phrase, Let God transform you into a new person, hell, By changing your circumstances, by changing your emotions, no. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. How do you unpack that verse? What is Paul talking about? It's fairly clear that the way we naturally think is not going to lead us in the direction that God wants us to go. There is a way of thinking that comes naturally to all of us that guides us onto a broad road without our even realizing it, that will lead us into a wasted life, a life lived to advance self-interest, and that way of thinking, and this is the tragedy, it's already deeply embedded in our minds. Now, as Christians, we recoil from that because we have a new heart. We have a new way of thinking. We believe truth now. Something else is going on Is There's now a, a competition between an old way of thinking and a new way of thinking. But the wrong way of thinking, the old way of thinking, if we let it remain hidden in a vague mumble and never clearly articulate it, then it can continue to have an unrecognized influence on how we live and how we relate. If we're not careful to understand what this wrong thinking really is, it can be influencing us in ways that are going to be leading us to not getting a well-done, now good and faithful servant. How often Christian-sounding self-help books, sometimes the teaching of a few popular preachers, reinforce the idea that God is committed to satisfy us with the life that we want to enjoy until we die. So if we're going to start considering how God's Spirit transforms us, what spiritual direction amounts to, and what spiritual formation, how it can result from good spiritual direction, We're going to get started in considering how all this works by dislodging false ideas about the forming life. Then maybe this title I have for this session fits The Unquenched Spirit Reaches Deep. The Unquenched Spirit Reaches Deep. And it reaches deep, it has to be, he has to reach deep for two reasons. Number one, In order to do the Spirit's best work, He's got to unsettle us. He needs to unsettle us in regions of our soul that we prefer to remain settled. He's got to unsettle us in regions of our soul we prefer to remain unexplored. He's got to shine His light into our dark thinking in order to awaken our deepest thirst for Himself. That's one way of thinking about how deeply the Spirit must reach. A second way of thinking why the Spirit must reach deep is this. Our natural tendency from birth is to resist the Spirit's unsettling movement. And these two thoughts are pretty much the same, a little bit nuanced difference. And in the process of our resistance to the Spirit's unsettling work, in the process, we actually quench His vital work of forming us to resemble Christ. But our resistance to the Spirit's work can be very subtle. It can be so subtle that we have little awareness, which is why conviction from the Spirit is required and is really an important big deal. And I think we'd agree that most often, not always, but most often the Spirit gently, but always reliably, offends our entitled determination to feel good about ourselves and our lives on our terms. The Spirit of God offends that way of thinking. And to the degree that I resist this disturbing work in my soul, it keeps me from ever being meaningfully broken over how far I am from God and therefore never discovering my thirst for how much I long to be with God. Until I'm meaningfully broken over the sin for which Christ died and living in the hope of eternal satisfaction that's coming, that'll be ours when Christ returns. Until that happens, I'm quenching the work of the Spirit." G.I. Packer, explained this foolish resistance that is simply in us as fallen image bearers. He called it in a very telling way, I think, the anti-God virus. It's a virus that's within us that is anti. It's, it moves against God. And it's that virus that encourages us to come up with two ways to think about spiritual formation. We've talked about this before in an earlier session. I want to review it again very briefly. We want to come up with ways of becoming spiritually formed that don't require the unsettling work of the Spirit. I want to be spiritually formed. I really do. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to know God better. I want to live a Christian life. I want all that. Of course I do. And so do you. So do all of us as Christians. But there's something in me that wants to come up with an idea of what spiritual formation is that doesn't require the unsettling work of the Spirit. And these two understandings that we've already discussed briefly allow us to remain settled where we are with no need to let the Spirit do His exposing work in our souls and to recognize how our self-centered style of relating is impacting our spouses, our children, our friends, our colleagues. How rarely do we spend time wondering how I'm impacting you in the middle of a particular moment because I think I'm a pretty nice guy. I think I'm responding rather well to you. I think I'm rather kind and rather thoughtful. And maybe I'm, you're not experiencing that for me at all. I think one of the great failings of Christian community is we rarely ask each other, how am I impacting you? How do you experience me? When I was in professional practice, I did that all the time. It wasn't a technique, it was a desire to relate to my client. I would say to them after half an hour of conversation, how do you experience me? That's considered verboten. Christian counselors shouldn't, or counselors shouldn't do that, but I think you should. I think we should become aware of how we're impacting other people. Because until I know that, then I'm not going to be on the track of recognizing the brokenness that's within me relationally. I recently became aware, and I know this gentleman, a theologian, who's actually quite brilliant, a well-known theologian. And he's been very helpful to me in his thinking. But as a good friend of his observed to me, he said, this man lives on recognition. He lives on the ability that he has to articulate and defend true doctrine. And he assumes that his defense of true doctrine is what most delights the Lord. And he continues then to live in his defense of all that he understands as a brilliant theologian. It just so happened as the Lord providentially arranged this opportunity that I spent time with his wife and he had been married more than 30 years. And when her husband was gone from the conversation, she teared up and she said, to me, was struggling. She wasn't saying it vindictively, just very sadly. My husband doesn't know me after 30 years of marriage. Let's understand something. Theological, theological formation is no guarantee of spiritual formation. If we realize that no one can acclaim spiritual formation if it isn't revealed in relational formation. And this man, that I've just mentioned briefly, of course, without a name, illustrates the first wrong understanding of spiritual formation that we talked about earlier. Approach one, to repeat myself a bit, a spiritually forming Christian evidences his his accomplished formation by living right, with the expectation that God will bless him with what he wants to feel good, with what he wants in order to feel good about himself. A spiritually forming Christian believes it's evidence of his spiritual formation that he's leading the blessed life. I must be living right because my life is going well. Is that spiritual formation? It doesn't require any unsettling. Just be good and life works. That's how spiritual formation works, some people believe. Call that the blessed life. The second approach, a spiritually forming Christian, evidences her genuine formation by seeking God through prayer, meditation, Bible study. In order for what? In order to experience nothing more Than a rich sense of God's presence that mends wounds and provides unruffled contentment with no thought of how am I relating with other people. That's where it gets unsettling. Eliminate that and you have a very deficient understanding of spiritual formation. Call that the healed life, understanding of spiritual formation. Neither understanding, in my thinking, gives proper place to the Lord's command to love others like Jesus loves nor do they provide the wisdom and ability to love well when loving gets difficult. These two wrong views of spiritual formation don't teach us how to relate. Spiritual teachers who lead others in either approach perhaps should wonder if God's indictment of spiritual leaders in Jeremiah's day might apply to them. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 4, God indicted the spiritual leaders by saying, they're offering superficial treatment from my people's mortal wound. What's superficial treatment? A treatment that doesn't unsettle the soul where it needs to be unsettled. And I know as I'm thinking about these things and talking about them now, I really don't want to hear, I don't want God to hear my teaching in this course and bring that indictment against me. I don't want this to be superficial teaching. That means it's going to be uncomfortable to places as it gets exciting. I want to take seriously David's approach to living spiritually alive to God. He asked to be unsettled. How many Christians ask to be unsettled? By the God who reaches deep into the heart, he prayed, God, and I, and I quote, search me, know my heart. Know my heart so you can see how much I love you and everything's great. No, search my heart to see if there be any grievous way within me. And I want to take seriously what Hebrews tells me about the Bible, because the Bible, and again I quote, says this, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, then here's the phrase I want, it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. What really is my motivation as I'm relating to you? What is really going on? Self-clarification or revealing the character of God by how I relate to you? those words that I quoted just come from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. So as I continue to think about spiritual formation, wanting really strongly to not have that indictment apply to my teaching, I find myself over the many years now, depending on great saints and their thinking that I can value and take from. Great saints have taken such scriptures about self examination very seriously, realizing the Spirit must reach deep to do His great work. And a few examples of people that you're familiar with that I've read, that you've read, I've read Augustine's book, classic book, Confessions. And he's, he actually began a whole new genre of writing back in the century when he wrote this book because he tells how the spirit profoundly unsettled him in order to free him from his sexual addiction. I wonder how many counseling approaches to sexual addiction unsettle something deep in the soul, the anti-God virus, in order to move away from the sexual addictive process. Augustine teaches me that. Teresa of Avila, she records the unsettling journey from one room in the soul where sin is enjoyed through five more rooms until someone reaches what she calls the seventh mansion, where the soul delights only in God and reveals and revealing him to others. And that journey is unpacked in the book Interior Castles. It's a classic. John of the Cross, another man that I mentioned before, he thought it was necessary to pass through confounding dark nights to discover the bright mornings. I'm not going to see the dawn until I walk through the night. C.S. Lewis said something very similar. He insisted the Spirit's forming work can be very painful. And again, I quote from Lewis, quote, no degree, and I love this phrase, no degree of heroism or holiness achieved by the greatest saints is beyond our reach. So am I going to ever enjoy meaningful spiritual formation more than is already true in my life? And I'm grateful for whatever is already there. But in order to think about what it means to be unsettled in a way, that lets me become more and more spiritually formed and realizing that the greatest achievement in spiritual formation of the greatest saints is not beyond my reach. I'm very helped in understanding this by a book by another philosopher at Boston College, a man named Peter Kraft, written a number of books, but his, my favorite of his many books is a book called Three Philosophies of Life. And that's what I want to talk about now for a little bit. I'm borrowing from Dr. Kraft's thinking. He suggests in his book, how the unquenched spirit, when we don't quench the spirit, we don't grieve the spirit. He suggests how the unquenched spirit reaches deep into the soul with transforming power through a cyclical movement through three experiences, two of which are profoundly unsettling. And the third, quietly restful. And these experiences are highlighted in Peter Kreft's, I think, rather spirit-guided imagination. These experiences are highlighted in three books of the Bible he talks first about what he chooses to call the Ecclesiastes experience. Now, if you read the 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, you understand that the real theme of the entire 12 chapters is to some degree summarized in chapter 1 and verse 13, one of the most difficult verses in the Bible, it seems to me, where Solomon, if he was the author of Ecclesiastes, writes this, After surveying the world and thinking hard and wanting to understand the meaning of life and pondering deeply and and putting his brilliant mind to this effect, he comes to a conclusion that's rather difficult. He says this, quote, God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. What on earth is that all about? Perhaps the key word in Ecclesiastes, and many of you are familiar with the book, the key word could be vanity, meaninglessness, chasing after the wind, a lot of words that mean essentially the same thing, it's the essence of the Ecclesiastes experience. Nothing we can do in life in between my birth and my death or under the sun, nothing that I can do can satisfy the deepest longing in my heart. It simply isn't available. And that's the tragedy that God has dealt to the human race. What I want the most, I cannot manage and I cannot get in this life as fully as I want it. Why would God allow us to go through the Ecclesiastes experience when I see no point to life? How many of you have had trouble at times getting up in the morning saying, why bother? What's the point? Maybe there's a healthy part to that. What is the point of getting up in life? For most of us it says, I'm going to make a lot of money today or I'm going to do this and it's going to be fun or I'm going on vacation. Nothing's wrong with all that. But if that's what I'm depending on, then I'm an Ecclesiastes experience. I need to realize that nothing in this world is going to satisfy my soul. The Ecclesiastes experience. Secondly, the Job experience. Talk about an attractive cycle from Ecclesiastes to Job. Remember the story, you all know it well, that Satan was convinced. As I read the book, it goes like this. Satan was convinced that Job loved God only because God had so bountifully blessed him. Job's life in between his birth and his death until the start of his disaster was really going very well. And Satan's basic thought to God was, of course he loves you, look what you're doing for him. He doesn't love you in the slightest. You're simply Santa Claus and he's a kid on Christmas morning. That's all your Christian life means to you, Job, or your God honoring life means to Job. God knew that Job unwittingly harbored the idea that his godly life entitled him to the blessings he enjoyed. And even during his years of blessing, we're told a very striking verse, he feared what could happen. In Job 3 and verse 25, Job says this, What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. The Job experience. I personalize that and I wonder what kind of fears are lodged in my soul that might happen. What kind of fears as we grow older do we think about? Alzheimer's, cancer, money problems, family heartbreak, grandkids going in wrong directions. And something in us just rears its proud head and declares, Surely a good God would not permit that. And when we say, surely a good God would not permit that, what we're really revealing is a bit of a clenched fist in the face of God, a demanding spirit, an entitled spirit. And you get that in the book of Job in chapter 13 in verses 15 and 18, where Job, in the middle of all of his difficulties, you know how many difficulties he had that culminated not only in the loss of his 10 children, but also terrible poor health. And in dealing with all the difficulties of life, he said, I'm going to argue with God. I'm going to argue my case with God. If I could meet him, i tell you what I would do. I would argue my case with God and I will be proved innocent, Job 13, 15, and 18, suggesting in part perhaps that he thought he deserved better treatment from God. In chapter 38, for the first time, during all of Job's troubles, God speaks. But it's so striking that when God speaks to Job and he allowed all this to happen, he gave Satan permission to mess up Job's life rather severely. And the first time God spoke, and we have no record of his speaking for however time... It happened between the disasters and when God did speak, weeks, months, years, we don't know, but for a long time. And when finally God did speak, he didn't speak in a still small voice that Elijah heard. He spoke confrontationally to Job to expose that Job does not know enough to question what God allows. The Job experience, it consists centrally in unexplained suffering with no realization at the time that it was intended to trans. Form Job from thinking like an entitled self to humbly bowing before God as a surrendered soul. And the test that God would put on Job and said, if you answer these questions, then you have a right to appear in my courtroom. And he couldn't answer any of the questions. And that reduced Job to where he belonged to be a humbled soul. And Job does exactly that, as our job experiences are meant to lead us to do. And as Ecclesiastes detaches us from Believing that this world can satisfy our souls, and as the Job experience exposes our fist in God's face, our demanding spirit. When in humbleness and humility, within humbleness, humility and repentance, we come before God. And the third experience that Crave talks about is the Song of Songs experience. And the way Crave talks about that helps me see that the songs of, the Song of Songs experience, it's the opportunity to draw near to God, finding meaning by telling the story even as we live with longings that cannot be satisfied in this life. Folks, that's a measure of maturity. Do you hear that last sentence? Being able to draw near to God by telling the story of God, loving others as Jesus loves us, telling that story even as we continue to live with longings that cannot be satisfied in this life, and embracing the deepest thirst in our soul to delight God by how we live in late, a joy that can be ours no matter what happens to us or in us. And that experience then leads us into living the in-between life a life lived in between the cross and the coming. I spent time on Kreeft's understanding of how the Spirit works because what I believe he's doing, he's giving us what I've come to learn to call spiritual theology. What's spiritual theology? 20 or so years ago, I met a man named Dr. James Houston, who was professor of spiritual theology at a college in Vancouver called Regent College. I'd never heard the term. I taught in a seminar. I knew the term systematic theology, biblical theology, other theologies. Never heard the term spiritual theology. I said to Dr. Houston, Dr. Houston, what's spiritual theology? And his response to me rather quickly, not uh, impatiently, but thoughtfully with a well thought through answer, he said, oh, Larry, spiritual theology is theology that changes the way you live. And we thinking, huh, I've studied systematic theology a little bit and all kinds of other theologies. I'm not sure if it's done more than puff up me, with, puff me up with knowledge. And that one sentence became a, began a tidal wave in my thinking. It really did. And I realized, thanks to that sentence from Dr. Houston, that without even recognizing it, that for most of my life as a Christian, I've been looking for a theology that would fill me with enough certainty to close my mind to all competing observations. I want to know I'm right so I can tell you're wrong. I want to be clear that I've got it and I'm going to know my Bible so when you take a different position I can defend my position and argue that I know what I'm talking about. That was my really partly my reason for reading the Bible. And I'd been studying the Bible so I could know how parents could raise godly kids, how childhood wounds could be healed, how I could be a good psychologist. God, I have all these questions from life and I want to know for sure what's true and I want to know exactly how to get people straightened out. Teach me about that, God. But thanks to Dr. Houston, a new thought came to my mind and the thought was this. Maybe this was a profound switching point in my life. Maybe God wrote the Bible to answer the questions I needed to ask, but I didn't even know I needed to ask. Maybe God wrote the Bible, To answer questions that I'm not naturally prone to ask, because I want to ask the questions that life is requiring me to ask. How do I raise my kids? How do I love my wife? How do I get this? There's lots of stuff in the Bible about that. But is there a deeper issue, a deeper sense of questions that God wants us to answer? Maybe the questions that God answered has less to do with how to get Christianity to work for me and more to do with intense interest in the larger story that God was telling. So I felt a very strong desire to read the Bible in a very different way, and I came up with an idea. I wanted to understand spiritual theology, answers to questions that God chose to answer in the Bible. Answers to questions that, when woven together, actually tell the story God is telling. What are those questions that I really had never thought to ask with supreme interest? Some years ago I put my mind to wondering, God, why would you write the Bible? What questions did you bother to answer in writing this Bible? And I tried to put aside the questions that I thought he should answer. Haven't you all at times thought God could have written a little better book than he's written? How about a couple of chapters on how to raise a teenage kid? That would be helpful. But he hasn't answered certain questions that we have that are very legitimate. But he said, no, I have more, and more important questions that you must learn to ask because these are the ones that I'm answering. So what I want to do now is I want to just list for you very briefly as I finish this session I want to list what's going to dominate our thinking for the rest of the series. I call them the seven questions of spiritual theology, questions that I believe the Bible has been written to answer, maybe many others that I'm not aware of. But these seven questions, when understood to some degree, tell the story God is telling and help us to join that larger story. Here are the seven questions. I'm going to say them very briefly and simply and then unpack them for the rest of our series. Question number one sounds like a rather obvious question. Who is God? A.W. Tozer believed that nothing is more important in a person than the word that comes to their mind when they hear the word God. Nothing matters more than what comes to your mind when you hear the word God. So who is this God? How does the Bible reveal him? Question number one. Question number two. What's he up to? What deep, eternal good is he doing in the moment through all the temporary good and bad times in our lives? What is the good story he's telling? What is he up to? What is this good story that doesn't seem good to us sometimes? Question two, what's he up to? Question three, who are we? How has God designed us as gendered image bearers to be capable of telling the story? See how we're changing it all around to fit the larger story? We're not just saying you're a man, you're a woman, so here's how you can feel good about yourself and your femininity, your masculinity, whatever. No. How can you feel good about yourself how can you find joy in telling the story God is telling and the unique way you can tell it as an image bearer, as a woman, as a man? Question three. Question four. What's gone wrong? Something certainly has. Despite our best intentions, like Paul, from birth to death, even mature Christians fall short of God's relational glory. My question is why? What's gone wrong? What's wrong with me even today that I've been fully forgiven for but still has some power in my life? Question number five. What's God done about what's gone wrong? What has God done about all the problems that are developing in this world that have their core in whatever it is that's gone most deeply wrong? And the the answer to that question has to be phrased in a different question. What did God accomplish through the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus Christ? What has God done about what's gone wrong? Question six, what's the Spirit doing now? The coming of Christ as I've said before, it feels to me like a very important sense. The coming of Christ sustains what the cross of Christ makes possible now as we follow the Spirit. The Spirit is working to see that the, possi- the possibility is realized. The possibility emboldened, made possible only by the cross. What is it? Question number six. How's the Spirit working that out? And then question seven. So how do we move with the Spirit into each other's lives? How do our conversations really track with the movement of God's Spirit? What kind of conversation between Christians and what kind of engagement with not yet Christians matter most in the story God is telling? Those are the seven questions that I believe that put all the books of the Bible together and we can come up with some answers to each of those. There's no one book that answers all of them, but each book suggests different ways of thinking about all seven questions. In the next session, we're going to begin a three-session answer to number one, question number one, who is God? If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below. Then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com.